Last week, looking at the first 10 verses of Hebrews chapter 10, we tried to answer the question that the Jews that lived around that time might have asked. What then did the old covenant sacrifices do? I tried to answer this question by using the analogy of a debt extension. Mankind owed a, a sin debt that we could not pay. And so properly understood, or maybe partially properly understood, the old covenant sacrifices of the animals were a way of recognizing that one day God was going to call in that debt and pay it. The incredible thing, the thing that nobody possibly could have imagined, is that God looked at the unpayable debt of mankind and decided that he would take on a human body and come and pay the debt himself on our behalf. It wasn't good enough for God to just sweep it under the rug or pretend it wasn't there. If God would have done that, sin would never have been dealt with. It would have festered like an infection. And when the time came for us to face our Creator, it would have separated us from Him forever. The atonement of Jesus Christ is like a carefully cut diamond. As we inspect it and we turn it in the light, more and more facets of its beauty are revealed to us. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to look at the next eight verses. We've been going, for those of you that are here this morning or visiting um, or haven't been in a while, we have been going through the book of Hebrews and we've, um, sometimes we've gone quite quickly and sometimes we've gone quite slowly. Today we're getting to the very end of the doctrinal or the teaching part of Hebrew and after today we're getting into the practical application of what does this all mean. Um, now, I've tried to have some practical application in all my messages, and that's what I'm going to be doing a bunch today, but we'll, we'll look at that today. Today, we're going to uh, read Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 11 and through verse 18. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he has said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having... Oh, sorry, that was the end of that passage. There's no longer an offering for sin. And then we're into the therefore, which is the practical application from here toward the end of the chapter. But let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for this book that you inspired to be written. Thank you for 
making it accessible to us. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to dive into it and to uh, see your heart, to see how Christ is exalted on every page. And this morning, it's no less. Christ is exalted again. Help us to exalt him in our hearts. Help us to see the truth of your word this morning and not to see it and walk away with pride that we've seen some truth, but to see it and be humbled because the truth points us to Christ and that we would walk in that humility in the week to come. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Title today's message, The Finished Work of Jesus Christ. The priests, and some of these ideas we've seen before, but we'll touch on them briefly to get the sense of the passage. The priests had to stand continually in their work. Their work continued daily, and sacrifices had to be repeatedly offered. The priests could never sit down. But, as we read in our passage, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, having finished his work of sacrificing for sin. Look at the contrast in verses 11 and 12. Many priests, one priest. Daily and repeatedly, once. Many sacrifices, one sacrifice. Never take away sins, complete cleansing from sin. You see that he's drawing an, a stark contrast between that which was old and that which is new. I thought of, before I gave this message, I thought I would give some examples of how to read some things out of context. For example, um, I've seen a headline, Sharks Slay Penguins. And if that was the only context you have, you'd be like, oh, I wonder where this happened. Antarctica, a whole bunch of penguins jumped into the ocean, something bad. It was talking about hockey. And so you can completely, if you just jump into the middle of a passage like this, you can completely miss what the author is trying to say. So it's really important that we understand what the author is trying to say here. He's writing to a group of Jewish people that have gathered together because they have some sense of the Messiahship claims of Jesus Christ. And the writer to the Hebrews writes them a letter and says, Jesus is better than everything that has come before, and he's better than everything that's going to come. And so he's presenting all of the ideas. This is why Christ is better than everything that you picked up in the Old Covenant that, that Moses gave to you. And he's, he's pointing each thing out, and he's going in detail how Jesus is the high priest. And that's where we jump into this passage today. Jesus is better. Everything that he's done is better. The seated posture of Jesus is important. It shows that his work is finished. He doesn't need to stand ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice as priests under the old covenant had to do. Jesus still ministers in heaven. He has a ministry of intercession for his people, but that ministry flows from his completed work so he can adopt a posture of rest. Jesus is waiting for the day his enemies are made his footstool. That's a neat word, footstool. It's, in the Greek, it has a really interesting history. The word stems from the act of a conquering king 
who would place his foot on the neck of his enemy for everyone to see, to show that he was the victor. So after a certain battle would be won, the losing king would be brought before the victory, the, the conquering king, and the conquering king would place his foot upon the neck of the losing king, and that was called a footstool. Paul alluded to the same idea in Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 13. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. You can either bow the knee willingly now, or you can bow the knee against your will later, but bow the knee every human being will. He talks about it in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. Therefore God, has all, God also has highly exalted Jesus and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. Jesus will make his enemies his footstool. There's no getting around it. He has declared it to be so, and it is going to take place. I heard a story this week related, I related it to Pete Gunther. Well, my wife was there as well, I told him, about an elderly man who was being interviewed on his 100th birthday. He was asked what he thought his greatest accomplishment was. He answered, I haven't got an enemy in the world. I outlived each and every one of them. <laughs> Jesus outlasts each and every one of his enemies. They rise up generation after generation, and they fall down. And they rise up generation after generation, and they fall down. And Christ remains. And his message stands. And his church moves forward. Christ will outlast every enemy. Men have tried to snuff out the Christians. Still happening today. You can go to different web, Christian websites that talk about the persecution of the church. Down through the centuries, Men have tried to snuff out the Jews. Men have tried to snuff out the Christians. Still happening. And every time, these men perish and Jesus lives on. From Haman to Hitler, from Nero to North Korea, men have tried to stomp out God's people and destroy any remnant and any memory of them. And Jesus lives on. His teachings live on. His people live on. His word 
lives on, and he will outlast even the final enemy, death itself. The location of Christ's throne is important. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is at the position of absolute authority. What Jesus says, the Father hears. What Jesus does, the Father approves. The passage goes on to talk about the work of Christ and how it's effective for those that are being sanctified. The work of Jesus is capable of saving every human being, but it is only effective in saving those who are being sanctified. Sanctify means set apart from the world and set apart to God. What would you think of a person, even if they called themselves a theologian, who would look at verse 14 and say that the word forever means temporarily. For by one offering he has perfected temporarily those who are being sanctified. I don't know if I'd have a whole lot, I don't know if I'd put a whole lot of weight behind his particular interpretation of the word forever. I think I might say that he got it wrong. <laughs> forever means forever. It's two words in the Greek. Forever. Emphasize it. Verses 13 and 14, the past tense, the present tense, and the future tense are all being used to describe the power of Jesus' offering. Remember what we talked about several weeks ago? We have been, past tense, delivered from the penalty of sin by the work of Christ. We are being, right now, delivered from the power of sin by the work of Christ. One day, we will be, future tense, delivered from the very presence of sin because of the work of Christ. Galatians 1.4 declares that Jesus gave himself for our sins that he might one day deliver us from this present evil world. We still live in a present evil world. When you became a Christian, did all the bad things around you that were happening just stop? No. It'll happen one day, but not today. Well, maybe today, later. Not right now. Sorry? Maybe right now. I'd be happy with right now. I'm happy with right now. But in the meantime, while we're still living in this sinful world, we find ourselves in this present evil age. When Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem and carried the captives back to Babylon, were Daniel and his friends spared and left behind? If that is our concept of the Christian life, it is at odds with God's word and we have our head in the sand. The so-called health and wealth gospel or name it and claim it gospel promoted by the NAR and others, is referred to by, by Paul in Galatians 1, 8 and 9. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, 
preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Those are strong words. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. It is the tool of the enemy of our souls, opposed to the truth found in Christ and denying the reality that persecuted Christians worldwide face every day. Anyone who might have the audacity to claim sinless perfection is making a claim that James never made, that John never made, that Peter never made, that Paul never made. As a matter of fact, let's look at what Paul did say. Look at Philippians chapter 3, beginning verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward, listen to the wording and, and absorb this wording, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That was Paul's view on the health and wealth gospel. The writer to the Hebrews goes on to make a really important claim that I want us to really take in this morning. If you don't take anything else in, I hope that you take this in. The writer to the Hebrews clearly shows that the Holy Spirit is Lord, Yahweh of the Old Testament. Verse 15, But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, and he goes on to quote the Old Testament. When the Holy Spirit speaks, the Lord speaks. The writer to the Hebrews believed that the Holy Spirit wrote the Old Testament. What do you believe? Jesus believed the Holy Spirit wrote the Old Testament. Paul believed the Holy Spirit wrote the Old Testament. The Apostle John believed the Holy Spirit wrote the Old Testament. Verse 15 says that the Holy Spirit witnesses to us in the Old Testament. And in what way does the writer to the Hebrews declare that we are hearing the declarations of God's Holy Spirit? He reads a passage from the Old Testament. The Bible is God's word to us. The Bible is God speaking to us. The writer of the Hebrews believes that the Holy Spirit is the author of all of the Old Testament books. Christians believe that the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. Is that what you believe? Dr. Jordan Peterson has said that he knows what people believe a thousand times better by watching what people do than by listening to what they say. So I ask you again, 
Is that what you believe? Why is it that some Christians feel they have to look elsewhere? I could come up with maybe 50 reasons. I'll list a few. I'm suspicious that maybe because it's not exciting for them. Maybe it's not easy enough. Maybe it takes work. Maybe it's too general and it's not specific enough. Maybe it's not powerful enough. Maybe it's not powerful enough. In the passage quoted from Jeremiah, the writer to the Hebrews makes note of the promises of the new covenant instituted by the Messiah. The new covenant, hold on to your socks, the new covenant is new. It comes after those days. The new covenant has to do with an inner transformation. God changes the heart of a man and writes his law into their hearts. The new covenant offers complete forgiveness. The forgiveness is so complete that God can say that he chooses not to remember our sins in light of the new covenant. Take away in take away sins literally means to strip off all the way around. Remember in the olden days, boys, when you wanted to make your own bow? and arrow, and you went and found a willow or, or, or a thin poplar tree, and the first thing you did is you took your knife and you took all of the, all of the skin off, so it was just this white piece of wood. You remember that? That's what take away means, to strip off all the way around, and that is what God has done to your sin. The believer is in no way on probation. We forget this all of the time. The believer is in no way on probation. Before God, past sin has no bearing of God's view of your position in Christ. I believe that the doctrine of purgatory is a slap on the face of Jesus saying, what you did is not enough. What you did is not enough, Jesus. Where sins are really remitted, there no longer remains an offering for sin. In the words, no more offering for sin, we reach the conclusion, the end of the doctrinal part of Hebrews. So he has laid down his argument and said, here it is. This is why Jesus is superior in every way that you can imagine and probably in every way that you can't. So what, what follows here in Hebrews is mainly exhortation. Sin has been taken away. It's gone. To go back to the temple and offer a sacrifice for sin is absolutely empty. It adds nothing to the solution to the problem of sin. Jesus separates the sin from the sinner. I thought about that. I thought about that a little bit. 
A lot of words in the New Testament that describe God's work are additional words. God gives you. God adds to you. God pours into you. But this one is not an addition word. This is his subtraction word. God remits your sin. He strips it off all the way around. Seems to me, I heard a song once, what can wash away my sin? Nothing. What can wash away my sin? Nothing. But the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Spurgeon said, the Christ who died on Calvary's cross will not have to die again for my new sins or to offer a fresh atonement for any transgressions that I may yet commit. No. But, once for all, gathering up the whole mass of his people's sins into one colossal burden, he took it upon his shoulders and flung the whole of it into the sepulcher wherein he once slept, and there it is buried, never to be raised again to bear witness against the redeemed any more forever. The work of Jesus for atonement is finished. If it is not enough for us, then nothing will be. Christ has offered himself and suffered and died in your place. What more would you have him do? What do you think you can do? Could you stand before the cross of Christ as he is suffering horrifically and he pushes himself up on his feet to take his next breath and the blood is pouring out of his wounds and you stand at the foot of the cross and attempt to relieve his suffering by telling him how good you are? Or how you behave better than somebody else? Think of how ridiculous that is. Think of how arrogant that is. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. When Esther's dad was in the hospital, he was struggling. Struggling with these memories of his, of his upbringing and his background. And, and there were things that were, that were nagging at him from way in the past. And, and for a little while, they would overwhelm him, and then he would break down into tears, and he would say, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. And we would just nod with him, say, Jesus paid it all, Dad. I know there's a lot of blackness back there, but Jesus paid it all. And then he would calm. Jesus paid it all. And he would calm down. I'll read some words from an ancient hymn. On the Mount of Crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love.
Let's pray.